Hello, and welcome to the Quadcast, brought to you by the Mary Christie Foundation, a thought leadership organization dedicated to the behavioral health and well-being of teens and young adults. We have a particular focus on college students. I'm Marjorie Malpedi, the executive director of the Mary Christie Foundation and the host of the Quadcast. Today, we launch a special series of the Quadcast on creating environments for flourishing. The series is based on a new report of the same name, recently released by the Mary Christie Foundation and Georgetown University. The report reflects the work that was done at a pair of convenings at Georgetown, where roughly 90 higher education leaders from across the country examined strategies to improve the behavioral health of college students. Our guests today were the keynote speakers of the March convening. Dr. Alan Schlechter and Dan Lerner are professors who co-teach the Science of Happiness, one of the most popular classes at NYU. They also co-wrote a book called You Thrive, How to Succeed in College and in Life. Dr. Schlechter is a clinical associate professor at NYU Langone Medical Center and the director of child and adolescent psychiatry outpatient services at Bellevue Hospital. Dan Lerner is a speaker, teacher, and strength-based performance coach. Welcome, guys. I'm so glad you're here with us today. So you guys teach an unusual and super popular class at NYU. I'm going to start with you, Dan. Can you start us off by just giving us an overview of the science of happiness? So Alan and I have taught this course, the science of happiness, together for almost a decade at NYU. And one of the ways to sort of bring it home in a way is to say uh, the second class of the semester, we tell the students that we have lied to them, that the, the course shouldn't be called the science of happiness. It should be called the science of well-being. But if we call it the science of well-being, we would have five people attending rather than 500 students attending. So we go with happiness. Now, happiness is really important. Uh, We make this very clear to them, too. It's an essential element, for most of us at least, uh, happiness, positive emotions, to overall well-being. But it's only one element. And so the science of happiness is a real look at the science behind what allows us to realize well-being, but also what actions we can take to nurture greater well-being. And we say well-being, and we'll get into this, I think, a little later in, in the podcast. It's really a balance between what allows us to thrive in life, sort of if we were looking at a negative 10 to, to positive 10, what allows us to go from zero to positive 10, the positive emotions, the positive relationships, meaning, purpose, passion, uh, and other factors, but also the factors that are either, I want to say, barriers or obstacles to well-being. So what about stress? What about mental illness, potentially? What about depression? What about anxiety? What are the factors that we have to consider in this overall equation to understand well-being? And specifically for the college population. So there's plenty of evidence out there around how optimism affects folks in their 40s, in their 50s, in their 60s, how willpower works for folks who are uh, our age. But there's also really a healthy base of evidence for college students. So we try to focus most of the evidence that we bring to them, about 95% of it, on the college student population. And as up to date as we can. So you as an 18 to 24 year old, how are you experiencing these things? How are ways that you can deal with the challenges and take advantage of the opportunities, not only for your age group, but also in the context you're living in? You've just, for many of you, left home and that could have been in the last week, not right now during COVID uh, for many of them, but uh, everything's changed. You've gone from this place where you were set up for success, where you were in a high school, where you had a routine, where you 
probably knew who you were eating with and when you were eating with them and, and when practice was and when, when classes were to a place where it's, it's almost one giant empty whiteboard where you can schedule everything. You don't know where your classes are, when they are. You don't know who you're going to eat with, what you're going to be eating, where the cafeteria is, who you're sleeping with that first night. And when we say sleeping with, we mean, of course, your roommate. But, you know, college is all of these opportunities. It's a lot to take in. So how do we take this science and uh, for all these topics and apply it and help them apply it, I should say, help the students apply it in a way that works in, in the current context they're in, which is so foreign and also so challenging and yet offers so many opportunities. Wow. That's a lot, Dan. A lot going on there. And full disclosure, I've heard these guys do sort of a version of their class for a convening we had, and it was a real treat. So instead of actually asking another question, I'm just going to throw it to Alan, because you guys riff off each other. So Alan, what do you have to say about what Dan just described? I, I think it's that mixture that we think is particularly essential in our class. And by the way, it is a pleasure to be speaking to you again. And that, and that can- same here. That convening you're talking about from the Mary Christie Foundation was mind-blowing. It's really, really powerful to oh, both of us. The idea that, you know, whatever the percentage is, that we're going to talk that if you really want to have a class on well-being, that it's going to be 70% about how to thrive and then 30% how to overcome challenges and that you need to address these as separate things. But for me, the really exciting thing that I want to leave with students is that I think many students show up to college expecting college to be stressful. If they went home at Thanksgiving and their parents said, how's college? And they were like, oh, it's super relaxing. <laughs> They'd be like, that's not college. And, and so everybody's expecting it to be really stressful. And most people have a mindset that I need to diminish stress. I need to keep stressful things away from me. But our class is really about the idea that part of it is managing stress. But the greater part and the greater vaccine, the greater antidote to stress is actually focusing on your well-being. And, you know, we draw, my favorite researcher about this is a guy, Corey Keyes, who's at Emory. He's a sociologist and a psychologist, just done this brilliant research where he takes undergrads, he looks at their levels of depression, anxiety, but he also assesses their well-being. Because for anybody who's watched the movie Inside Out, you can be happy and sad at the same time. <laughs> and what he found is that even if you had diagnosable depression or anxiety, if you had high levels of well-being, you were protected in terms of your ability to get work done and even in terms of the degree of your illness. So it Instead of just getting rid of stress, our class is also about getting people to have a definition, a really concrete definition of well-being. I think giving them that and teaching them how to work with it, and I'm going to throw it back to Dan, which is PERMA. You know, and I, I, I jump in here, and Alan, I, I think you're spot on. Go on. And you're so handsome, too. Yes. Um, so, uh, <laughs> you know, when Alan says a working definition of well-being, yeah, we have a definition of well-being. A good part of the semester is helping students craft their own because everyone's definition of well-being is going to be different. For me, and we'll talk, we can talk about PERMA for sure. These are, that's an acronym for five elements that, that we discussed based on Martin Seligman's research, which is positive emotions. The E is for engagement. The R is for positive relationships. The M is for meaning and the A is for accomplishment or achievement. It's, it's not the only, but it's the matrix that we use for well-being. And everyone's going to find a different balance there. Right? For some folks, 
uh, for some of these students, relationships are going to be incredibly important to their well-being and accomplishment is going to be less so. Right? And then for the person sitting next to them, it could be exactly the opposite. Achievement or accomplishment, that is really big when it comes to well-being and relationships, they're important. They're important, but they're not as much so. So to help them understand uh, what their definition of well-being is and the fact that it's fluid. Because whatever they come in expecting well-being to be, as Alan indicated, it's going to be stressful. How do I manage this? It's bound to be different. There's no way to anticipate what it's like. Sort of like, you know, it's almost like for those of you out there who are parents, there is no way, there's no one that can prepare you for what it's like to have that child. And when they turn six months and then two and then four and then 10 and then 16, uh, my boy's about to be a teenager in two months. Oh my gosh. It's different then. So to help them understand that well-being changes throughout the lifespan, to give them tools, to give them the definition that is, that is malleable and tools that they can use at different points throughout their life. So yes, that's your definition, but it's their definition. Right? How do we help them build that? There's so much about your class that I find fascinating, starting with the fact that it's ridiculously popular. Everyone wants to take this class. So what do you think is the main reason people are so interested in this subject, A? And do you think that the material is what they expected it to be? <laughs> I've stumped them. I can't believe it. Great. <laughs> I, it's, a, it's such a great question. I'm still sitting here in awe of your question. Um. <laughs> well, I, I think the first part, we're actually doing a study of the class. And I think there's a lot of debate about what is the connection. And by the way, I think there are multiple connections. I think it depends probably on many different factors and as to why they take the class. But I think the novelty of the class, the surprise of the class is a really, I haven't been asked that before. You know, I think people, I think are caught off guard by the class, by the idea that they're taking the science of happiness and the degree, just as Dan said, that we're gonna give them some constructs, but the amount we push them to look within themselves, to think about that it's a class very much about creating change, changing habits, changing thought habits, changing behaviors, and how much we try to push them as individuals. You know, I, I, I'd say, again, spot on, Alan. Amazing. And one of, the, one of the key things I think Alan's saying is that it's about them. This course is really about them. Mm. Yes, we bring science. Yes, we bring the interventions. Or the, you know, 80% of our, of our grades are, are intervention-based. You know, they have to take some, do something like a gratitude journal or, or use the signature strengths and keep, basically write a one- to two-page short response paper to it. What was their experience? But the course is about them. We want it to be, yes, about college students, but who are you sitting in the third row as a sophomore who is concerned about if you're going to be able to get a, an internship this summer? Who are you as a senior who's going to have to get a job? Who are you as a first year who've been here for a week? How do all of these things apply to you? So as Alan said, push them to work with these topics in a way that's helpful for them. And I think that goes back to your to the first part of this question, Marjorie, which, which was why do people take this course? You know, this this course and courses around the country, by the way, that have been popping up uh, consistently, I'd say, for the last decade, in great part is because the demand is rising. If we look at statistics for college, for well-being, for example, uh, the Co American College Health Association in, I believe, it was 2014, had a poll of 16,000 college students. Off the top of my head, it was about 60% of them uh, felt very sad each and every year on campus. But 
two years later, same organization, same amount of students polled, it's almost 70%. So you have this swing, this massive swing in sadness, and the same goes for feeling hopeless on campus. Same goes for, for depression on campus. It's risen 30% in that short period of time. So I think demand is out there. So one of the big questions that I think we're striving to address more and more is not only what does it mean to be happy or have well-being, but let's understand why we are so hungry for it right now. And students, college students, and increasingly high school students uh, are feeling this pressure from so many different perspectives, uh, whether it's social media related, whether it's expectations. I personally think a lot of it has to do with the, the, the speed of things. When I was in my mid-20s, about 20 years ago, I was talking to a buddy of mine. He said, Dan, and he's sort of incredulous. He was in the tech sector. He said, Dan, I think I'm going to be a millionaire by the time I'm 30. And I was like, whoa, that's crazy. Like, I don't think I'm ever going to make that kind of money ever in my entire life. But that was him when he, we were marveling at the idea that he'd do that when he was 30. Then that I'm going to be a millionaire became 25. And now I think for a lot of students, it's become, if I don't have the plum job that's paying me huge amounts of money by the time I'm stepping foot out of this door. And then if I don't know what I want to do by the time I start college, it's getting earlier, it's getting faster. And the pressure is, is weighing on students to uh, find what we, I'm going to put this in air quotes, see a success quicker than ever. That's a real challenge. So having tools to understand, let's define well-being. Let's also define what success means, not for everybody, but for you is essential. So when Alan talks about those other factors that come into play, by the end of the semester, hopefully they'll understand it's not just positive emotion. It's what does choice have to do with my well-being? What is willpower? What does it mean to have a healthy passion? And yeah, guess what? You're going to be stressed out. There's no two ways about it. How can I see it in a way that I can use it now when I'm feeling it more than my older brother or sister did, certainly more than probably my parents did as well. But what you mentioned, I think, is so important. And I remember this from having researched your work before, this helping them define their own version of success versus what the society sort of imposes on them. That's part of what you teach them, right? That's right. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's interesting. When I've brought up success, well, both of us have brought up success, Alan and myself, in, in talks, often I've heard a mumbling <laughs> response from other professors. You know, sort of when it's in a mixed group saying, well, how do you define success? Like, that's a really good question. But we don't ask that a whole lot, right? And certainly, I think for students, it's defined from external factors. How do you start asking yourself the really tough questions? And part of the, part of what we want to be able to do in this course is give them a setting, give them a community where they can ask those tough questions going, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm in pre-med and I don't really like it. Why am I there? Because my parents want me to be there. Oh, okay. Well, let's talk about what you want. You know, let's start thinking about the things that are factors in your living a life uh, where you're thriving and hopefully creating a space where it's kind of safe for them to do so. The first class of the semester, we show them some data on stress. We say, who here has been stressed out since they got to college or in the last two weeks? And pretty much every hand goes up. Great, great. Keep them up. And as they're up, we say, wonderful. Now, now look around. And you can see as everyone looks around, their eyes get wide. Because they thought, maybe I was the only one. And so once you have that environment, you can start having these questions of, well, why do you find success that way? What are some factors maybe you haven't considered or you might want to reconsider with your classmates and you're hearing them go, oh my gosh, me too. I thought I was the only one. And so the idea, I am not alone, is something we try to cultivate. And I think it's been a, a huge, a huge factor in, in helping students in this context. 
you guys have helped so many students throughout the years and you've written a book. So tell us a little bit about, you said your course is starting tomorrow. What does your course look like technically? I mean, you're talking about doing a, a remote version of your course. That's my first part of my question. And my second part of my question is really just to talk a little bit more about all the great stuff you've been doing since COVID-19, because you really have been providing resources to students in different ways. You so what does your class look like and what other kinds of online things are you doing and resources are you providing during COVID-19? We made the class completely virtual based on NYU's policies. We weren't going to be able to meet in a room together. What we've done is really key to the class is also the recitation. And the recitations are normally 25 students. We've gotten extra TAs so that our recitations are now 15 students. Because I, I actually even less in some cases. I, I just don't think you can have a Zoom call with more than 12 to 15 people that's going to be meaningful. And I think we are adding in weekly videos from Dan and myself, extra forums for students to talk online. And we've added an extra essay, you know, shifting the work around to make it more realistic for being an online course. But for me, and it's what Dan and I spent two hours talking about this morning, was how to acknowledge COVID, how to acknowledge the impact of social injustice, how to acknowledge the impact of racial injustice on our impact and in this class. And to, you know, we're not sociologists and we, we can't fully have certain conversations in the class, but we want to acknowledge the issues, see how far we can take some of the conversations. And, and the, the class has always taught Dan and I as much as we've taught it. You know, we always leave going, oh, that's fascinating. Oh, what that student brought up was amazing. And I think we had a surprisingly good class last semester. And Dan had great classes over the summer. And I think we're both excited to see what this semester is going to bring in terms of our ability to engage in, I would call, the more difficult conversations about well-being than we've had in the past. Yeah, you know, when we went from in-person to online classes in the spring after the break, uh, I think that we, Al and I both, really had no idea what to expect. Given that a warm, engaging, interactive environment is so key to how we teach, and that our students now living in conditions akin to being grounded 12-year-olds, like in perpetuity, we were pretty sure the Zoom call was going to be kind of awkward, and we, we really couldn't have been more wrong. I think the first question we asked that day was pretty simple. It was something like, who has overcome a stressful situation in the past month. And in the chat box on Zoom, it was me, 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 me. I mean, hundreds of responses. We had about 500 people in the, in the, in the classroom that day. And then we asked who'd be willing to share their experience. And like, again, hundreds of responses. I will, I will, I will. And so we called on somebody and someone shared a really beautiful story about her grandmother who had been ill and had recently recovered. And as she spoke, the chat box blew up. That's amazing. That's so wonderful. Please send your grandmother our best, so on and so forth. And I think we realized within the first two minutes of that first online class that these students were so hungry for community mm. that it was an opportunity to be able to shape a class to help them find that, help them find time. So the first 10, 15 minutes of each class changed considerably from either lecture or a quick question to, let's say, for example, in the relationships class, usually the question that we ask is something like, what relationship in your life do you find most fulfilling and why? But when we held the class, it was the day after the first big day of protests. And that was not a question that was fitting. And so the question shifted to what do relationships mean to you? 
And the conversation that emerged from folks, in some cases, who had been at protests, folks who were watching them from afar, folks who uh, missed, whether it ranged from, I really miss my friends, to I saw some extraordinary things during the protests that people I didn't know, and now I think about our relationships differently, to some people just saying, I'm really lonely right now. And the interaction that would happen on the chat with their students, the support was remarkable. So that's what we're trying to build in now. And one of the one of the things that we're fortunate enough to be able to do is I think what we've always focused on this is how do we stay current? You know, the, the students from five years ago, not the students of, of today, the students of, of eight months ago, were certainly not students of today, given their experiences. How do we build that in? And so, as Alan said, with things like COVID, things like social injustice, we want to give them a space because those are factors in well-being. So we will hear different responses to questions of meaning and different responses to questions of what's engaging you because you're not on, for many of them, not on campus, but we're still getting responses and we're finding, oh, that's engaging for you. You're cooking for your family twice a week and you get to spend more time with them. You're having different conversations. Ah, that's really interesting. That's meaningful to you. And other students are going, oh, I hadn't thought about that. That is an opportunity for me. So being able to bring them all together in this classroom on a virtual classroom means the chats are free and open and, they can hear each other. While we always have interaction in the classroom, hands up, lots of talking, there's some wonderful aspects to the online teaching experience and really community, I should say. That is fascinating. You guys are so optimistic, and I, I'm glad to hear that because it seems to me isolation is one of the problems that they face, certainly in general, and exacerbated by what they're going through now. So being able to kind of find that silver lining is is great through through this course. One of the things that I think is valuable about what you do, having having sat in on your lecture, is really the self-deprecation that you guys sort of use in your teaching. And, and I think, Ellen, you told me this, that your own stories about wellness that you share with your students. So I remember, Ellen, you were telling me a story about when you started the course. Am I right to say that you started the course by yourself? And then, Dan, you observed and sort of like pointed out about five things that were not going to work. And Alan, you were really good about it. But this kind of going back and forth and making fun of yourselves is actually a technique that makes the kids feel good too, doesn't it? And talk a little bit about that, because I think that's what's really, really cool about what you do. It's really essential, I think, if you cannot, if you're going to talk about challenges, but not acknowledge any of your own, it is just not going to feel honest or create an environment where anyone else is going to feel open. And I think a lot of people who talk in the well-being community, and Dan, it's so funny, we were just talking about this earlier, the, one of the challenges they can be with studying well-being is I think a perfectionist can get the idea in their head that they can perfect their well-being, which is not the case. Or it becomes a never-ending task for others. And the truth is, uh, Dan and I teach this. We, we come, I mean, Dan in particular, from a place of just tremendous flaw. <laughs> Dan, I mean, it's just, no, but, you know, I, I struggled a lot with my mental health in college. And I think that's probably one of the reasons I was drawn to thinking about mental health in my life and probably becoming a psychiatrist and, and a child psychiatrist. And my path from struggling with it and struggling with it fully took, took really eight years of, you know, just wanting to get rid of the bad stuff, as opposed to when I turned 27, 
I was like, no, this is about me really developing myself and also minimizing some of the suffering and sharing that with students, letting them know that, you know, when I was in college, I had such a fixed mindset. If I didn't get a good grade, I would throw it away. I couldn't even, I didn't have the tolerance to deal with reading any critiques. And because of that, I didn't get better. It wasn't until medical school when I was around really growth mindset individuals that I learned that one's ability to learn from failure really is one of the great determinants of how much you get to grow and how much better you'll do. So we get to share these things with the students and then we really work a lot with our teaching assistants for them to share their own challenges. And they were all former NYU students, some of them really recently. And so it's about getting the students to tell their own stories of achievement and also of challenge. Yeah, and you know, I'd say tell their stories in some cases, in other cases, just to think of, just to think about them, right? I mean, when you have someone they can relate to, I mean, look, we're not going to pretend that, you know, us being in our 40s, you know, 20 plus years removed from college, they can relate to us as, you know, as, as sort of peers that way. But to let them know that, you know, one can talk about, say, passion or willpower or grit in ways that we use figures that are untouchable. And that's often what happens, right? Let's look at a paragon of willpower. Let's look at a paragon of whatever it may be. And there are folks out there who do it. Folks who, I think one of the most challenging ones are finding that place where, where happiness or say well-being, now that we've discussed that, well, well-being and excellence or success, depending on the conversation, where they come together. That's really challenging. And often we use these icons who are untouchable. So being able to talk realistically about, tell stories that are realistic stories about our many, many, many failings, and also the challenges that one might have on the, on the pathway to understanding, to, to defining what success and well-being looks like for them. It's interesting because students will approach us and quite differently. Certain students will go to Alan and they, you know, I want to talk after very specific lectures. I want to talk to you about what we talked about today. And others will come to me and they almost gravitate to go, oh, I'm really interested in his path. I can, I think it's because they can relate. And others will look at me and I, I'm interested in, in dance path. I can relate. So having those conversations, you can see them open up. And it's, it's a wonderful thing. I mean, for me, I don't want to define it for Alan. The most meaningful part of the work that we do is knowing that we're helping others live a better life. And so being able to be very open about the fact that we're on the same journey they are, it seems like it allows them to open up and have conversations they wouldn't have had otherwise. So You know, I can just imagine what this semester is going to be like. Before I close, any, any last words to our audience based on what we've been talking about today? I think the we've all taken a hit in terms of our well-being, and it's, it's muted, I like to say. It feels very muted. And I hear a lot of people saying, I just want to relax. And I push back against that a little bit. I think you really need to find, even sometimes in very micro ways, the activities that really engage you and that give you the positive emotions right now. You need to find the ways that you can give. You need to find the ways you can feel accomplishment, even if it's a Zoom call, which doesn't feel as authentic as being in person. You still need to do it, and we all need to keep doing it. Dan, giving you, giving you the last word. 
well-being is very different today than it was six months ago. All the components, many of them are going to look very different for us, but they are still available to us, as Alan was saying. And I think that's the key is redefining what those elements look like to us and, and pursuing them. It's not going to look the same. If that's what you're shooting for. It's not going to happen, but it is available. And part of, uh, part of the wonderful path is the path. Being able to look at your family and go, I am spending more time with you now. Maybe too much sometimes, but I'm going to find what is really good here that I maybe haven't seen before. What's novel? What's different? What are the opportunities? And also, and I guess I close with this, uh, and this is a line from Tal Ben-Shahar, who taught this material at Harvard quite some time ago. It's just giving yourself the permission to be human. Days are going to be hard. Weeks are going to be hard. And there will be months that are going to be hard. And that's okay. Talk to folks about it because you're not alone. You guys, it's always such a pleasure. Thank you so much for sharing all that good stuff with us. And I hope that we get together soon. Thanks so much. Thank you so much, Marge. This has been wonderful. Thank you. Take care. Bye, guys. Thanks so much for listening. This has been The Quadcast, a program of the Mary Christie Foundation. To learn more about our work, go to marychristiefoundation.org, where you can sign up for our other programs, the MC Feed and the Mary Christie Quarterly. And if you like what we're doing, leave us a rating or review on your favorite podcast player. And please tune in next time for the next episode of Creating Environments for Flourishing.